Turn with me this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 37. Mark 7, beginning at verse 24. I want to ask you a question. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you're asking this question about a home church. But those of you who go to our church, I want to ask you, who do you pray that God would send to our church? Now, some of you may be praying for intact, believing families with multiple children. I remember we used to go on vacation to different churches as we were on vacation, and if we went in a small church, then they would surround us after the service to say, oh, how wonderful that you're visiting with us, until they found out we were a pastor at another church, and then they weren't quite so impressed. Are you praying for believers with defined and tested gifts to come here so they can add to the ministry of our church? Or maybe you're praying for people with an incredible testimony, those that you find in awe that God would actually save them. Well, let me tell you, the gospel of Christ is not for our choosing or our desires, but for God's choosing and his building the church. This is a valuable lesson from God's word. It's shocking to hear what Jesus says because it plays upon the ears of those who might hold these opinions about other people. It's a valuable lesson from Christ's ministry right here in Mark about who he might bring into the family of God. Read with me, or follow along as I read, rather, from chapter 7, verse 24 of the Gospel of Mark. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As we consider these words, let us bow briefly in a word of prayer. Lord, we just sang that we should live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Lord, what words you have to give us, words of life. Lord, we pray that they would fall on ears that hear and hearts that understand today by your spirit. Lord,
Lord, help us to learn from it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, whatever is spoken here, whatever is thought here, whatever is done here, I pray that it might be consistent with your word or else pass away, never to be seen or heard from again. In Jesus' name. I want you to pause just a second and look around the church. I give you permission. You can look behind you. You can look beside you. Look at other people in the church today. Okay, so you've looked at some people. I want you to know that the people here this morning are diverse. They come from different income levels. Some were born in different countries. Some were brought here from all over the country. We have the great privilege of living in a place that is great diversity with northerners and southerners, if you can believe that. Coming from a whole variety of occupations, some of them even from former government jobs. We have Jews and Gentiles here, thanks to Bruce. And we have here all kinds of varied individuals. But we come here, why? Because God brought us here. It's not because we would normally be associating with each other in these ways. In fact, this is not necessarily the case in many of our churches. In many churches, there is a very much a lack of diversity, a lack of backgrounds, a lack of differences. And sometimes that's because that's the way God made that church. It might be in a small town where there's not a lot of diversity. But yet this passage reminds us the gospel is for all people everywhere from every background, every nation, every tribe, and every language. In fact, we're told here three particular things that we're going to address this morning. The first is that the gospel doesn't wait. Secondly, the gospel is for all people. And thirdly, the gospel is even for what we might call today marginal people. First of all, the gospel doesn't wait. Have you noticed the theme here in this section of Mark? It seems like the ministry is so busy that Jesus and his disciples constantly are looking for a chance to rest. Here's what happens in verse 24 when Jesus arose, he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Remember, this is, this is a region that is away from the people of God. In fact, Tyre and Sidon in those days were often described as the enemies of God's people. He enters a house and it says he did not want anyone to know. Why? He was ready for a sabbatical. He was ready for a break, a retreat, even maybe a few hours on his own. But here's another retreat that is interrupted. He could not be hidden. Now it's interesting when we think of this region again, we think not of the people of Israel, in those days, remember, Tyre and Sidon were on the very edge of the kingdom of God. They were actually on the other side of the border. And if you remember your Old Testament history, these were some of the areas where they, would, uh, they were close to the Mediterranean Sea. And sometimes they would have interactions with Israel, but they were, by and large, outside the people of God. And, and the people who were residing there in Jesus' time were, were not necessarily Jewish. There were some Jewish believers or some Jewish people there, but it was mostly a Gentile region. 
And yet already the people there have been introduced to Jesus. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, we read these words. It says, And Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, a great crowd was following him, even from these places. He had his reputation been known now all over the region. So due to his familiarity in the region of Tyre, he can't even escape there for a vacation. Now some of you may even have taken the time to come to Myrtle Beach for a break. Imagine if all the people that are clamoring for you during the week come down to Myrtle Beach to follow you. That's what's happening to Jesus. In fact, it says here literally, he was not able to escape unnoticed. It's not that he wanted to be hidden, he just didn't want to be noticed. And yet, by God's grace, God's opportunities, the crowd followed him there. Notice what takes place in verse 25. Immediately, this is Mark's favorite word, I think. It happens throughout the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a quick book. It's not only the shortest of the Gospels, it also uses this word immediately over and over and over again. In this case, this woman has heard that Jesus is there, and immediately she gets up and goes. Gospel doesn't wait. Here are the constant needs of the people. Here is someone who knows her situation. She is desperate. Her child has this unclean spirit. We know from other instances and recordings of this type of thing, it's possible that this child was thrown about here and there, maybe had a bruised life in many ways. There was another person who had a son who's Son was constantly falling into fires. You know, these were terrible things. She has an immediate response because she has a desperate need. She wants her child to be well. And of course, if we understand the context here, there's constant needs here. In verse 31, we're going to encounter the same thing. When he returned from this region of Tyre and Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, there's yet another needy individual comes, this time a deaf and a mute person. In fact, the Decapolis area actually brings the second needy person that comes to Jesus. The first, Jesus approached, and he was demon-possessed in the region of the Gerasenes. Now, from chapter 5 to chapter 7, here's the second person. There's these constant needs. There's everybody seems to know someone that has a desperate need in this region. And, of course, the miracles here. When Jesus heals the deaf man, verse 36 says, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. These miracles brought even disobedience of the people because they can't help themselves. In this sense, the gospel doesn't wait. It just comes upon Jesus in powerful ways, even to the point that he cannot find rest. I remember my first week in ministry. I was the student supply at a church. I had been installed there as student supply, and I was there on Friday putting my books in the office. And Monday morning, I was finishing up the touches of the office before I went to work the next day on Tuesday. I went home that evening. I did not even have a phone yet. Those were the days before we all had cell phones. 
And lo and behold, 10 o'clock at night, an elder came knocking on my apartment door. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, this is weird. It's an elder that's knocking on my door. I open the door, here's this elder, I'm thinking, is this normal? Do you come to the pastor at 10 o'clock at night the day before he starts work? Is there some kind of uh, maybe hazing or something that they do at a church? I don't know. But lo and behold, he came in and he said, by the way, I want you to know there was a family in our church who had their only daughter, age 23, who didn't come home from work today. She's missing. And, you know, that whole week was spent introducing myself to this couple I had never known before. I was a 27-year-old new pastor. The 23-year-old daughter was found dead in her car in a parking lot not too far from my apartment on Thursday. The gospel doesn't wait. How do we apply the gospel in such a situation? My first sermon was from the book of Lamentations in that church. In fact, as we ministered to that family, I didn't know what to do. They didn't teach that in seminary. I remember calling up my father and saying, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And he said, just be there with them and love them. I remember, I'll never forget, the evening that they found out that their daughter was dead, going into their basement, and it was full of people. No one spoke a single word for what seemed like half an hour. They were just there for them. But the gospel doesn't wait. The first people I ever got a chance to baptize were this girl's grandparents. The first person I saw from being a nominal believer, someone who maybe came to church once or twice a month and began to ask the questions about at predestination of all things. After the death of his daughter, he became a deacon in the church. They became good friends for a long time because the gospel doesn't wait. If you are a pastor and you're not ready to be interrupted, then maybe you need to think about another profession. I remember from that same church, we sent a few years after that a team to the Cherokee Mission down here in the Carolinas. And it was interesting to me, one of the things they did is they said, here is the plan for your ministry for the week, but we want you to know you must be ready to change at any time. In fact, their, their particular phrase that they used all the time was Semper Gumby. Be flexible. Remember that little mascot of the Olympics when it was in Atlanta was the Gumby figure. I don't know why. It's kind of a strange, bizarre thing. But it's very flexible, you know, this Gumby character. And so, so they said, always be flexible because it could change at any moment. And you'll find yourself doing something you do not expect to do because this is ministry. When we read through the scriptures, Jesus knew often what was coming. But he and the disciples had to be ready for the opportunities that God would bring him. And this opportunity is a fascinating one. There's a woman that comes, and she's not of the Israelites. Remember, by this point, Jesus has primarily come and ministered to the people of Israel. In fact, he's going to say here very specifically that's what he came to do. 
And in fact, we understand that the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We know from Acts 1.8, the great verse about mission and making disciples and being witnesses of Jesus Christ, that it starts in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here is this woman. She comes and Mark tells us what this woman is. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Phoenician, Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now why does Mark spend so much time on the woman's identity? Well, you know, like John does with the Samaritan woman, first of all, to describe this as a woman was to understand the culture of the day. Men didn't talk to women in public. In fact, Pharisees in particular, those who were scribes and Pharisees and others, they would have nothing to do with educating a woman. And a woman's testimony in court was considered unreliable. She did not have the rights and privileges that we, we have in our society for women. Christians would actually open up doors for women in society. But first of all, she is a woman. In fact, when we see John, we understand in John about the Samaritan woman, they were surprised, the disciples were surprised that he would even speak to her in public. The second thing it says about this woman, she's not only a woman, it says here she's a Gentile or a Greek. Of course, this too is considered bad things. You're Jewish, you don't speak to Gentiles, particularly in public. In fact, you don't associate with them just for the fact that he's actually here in Tyre and Sidon is rather unusual for someone who might be described as a teacher. In fact, it was rather Amazing to many individuals that someone who claimed to be following the law would associate himself with not only a woman, but here a Gentile. The third is the real kicker here. Mark describes her as Syrophoenician by birth. Matthew uses another word. He says this is a Canaanite. In other words, this is one of those individuals that is descended from the people that the people of Israel were supposed to have destroyed hundreds of years ago. These are the people that, that God sent the people of Israel up to take their land because the iniquity of their sin was full. That was the prophecy that God gave Abraham. He said, Abraham, your people are going to go down to Egypt and they're going to be there for 400 years and then they're going to come back when the iniquity of the Amorites is full. In other words, these are a sinful people that God wanted destroyed from the face of the earth, but the Israelites failed to accomplish that mission. Here is this woman approaching the Savior of the Jews and asking something from him. And here's the response of Jesus. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does that not sound mean to you? In fact, I think in today's language, we would say, this is racist. 
In fact, we would say this is a terrible thing to say. Now, is Jesus saying this because he believes this about this woman? I think he's using this as a foil so that this woman can interact with him. In fact, look at what Matthew says in describing this particular aspect of the uh, conversation. And I've dropped my, uh, my notes here somewhere, so let me get to them. It's Matthew chapter 15. It's in your bulletin there. Here's how he describes it. He did not answer her a word. Completely ignored her for at least a few moments. His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. In other words, get rid of this woman. She's a pest. She's a nuisance. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? This woman's been called a dog. How does she react? First of all, she has a persistent and humble faith. Notice what Matthew says. She continued to cry out. At first, he ignored her. Now, was Jesus ignoring her because he wasn't going to help her or had no intent of helping her? Of course not. He's the Son of God. He's divine. He knows that she's coming. He knows what's going to happen in this situation. He knows what he's doing. But he's necessarily teaching us here something. By the fact that she continues to cry out, he's showing the persistence of this woman's faith. In fact, it's just like the woman he describes later in prayer, where he says the woman is not getting justice, and so this woman goes out to the judge and she begs him over and over again, and so, so much so that the judge gets tired of, coming, of her coming to him, and he finally says, I'll give you some justice. He says, this is the kind of faith that I'm seeking in Israel as a persistent faith, continuing to cry out. It's also a humble faith. Notice what she's done. First of all, she's come, thrown herself down at his feet, recognizing her unworthiness. Her submissive acts show humbling desperation. She is so desperate for Jesus to help her in this situation, but also a reminder she believes that Jesus can help her in this situation. And when she comes in this particular humbling way, it shows faith. But perhaps more than anything that shows faith is this. When this woman is called a dog, does she get up and say, well, I had great opportunity to think highly of you, but now I think very lowly of you. How dare you call me such a thing? No. She accepts the terminology. She accepts the terminology perhaps because, we don't know, maybe, perhaps because she recognizes she's an uncovenanted Gentile. In other words, she is someone who is coming who has no right to come as someone who is a Jew and who has received the Messiah sent to save God's people. She recognizes she is outside the covenant. But I think it's more than that. 
I think it's that she recognizes her own personal unworthiness. After all, if we come to the Lord in faith, the first thing we recognize is that we're all terrible sinners. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what background you came from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter any of these things. In this sense, we're all outside the kingdom of God until God brings us near, and all of us are as dogs. But how does Jesus describe this woman? When she admits this, she says to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, she's recognizing, Lord, I'm a dog. I admit that. And I'm coming before you recognizing I have no right to eat at your table. I have no right to get the food you have to offer the family of God. But, Lord, even the dogs under the table, like myself, with no right, filthy and unclean, for after all, these were unclean animals, and scripture often refers to dogs as the worst unclean animals in the society around them. They're not like the pets of today that seem to be so often an idol of the household. They were unclean, unaccepted, and in this case, she recognized she had no right to come to him by her birth. And she said, yet even the crumbs are for me. And what did Jesus say about this woman? Matthew said she had a great faith. You know, he says that hardly ever about any Israelite. He said that about a centurion. He says that about this woman. What is it about this woman that shows that she has a great faith? First of all, it's a recognition of her unworthiness before God. And it's a recognition that she has to be brought in and given a blessing from God to even be counted among the number, even as the lowliest of the low. It's a recognition at the same time. Notice what it says here. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In Matthew it says, the master's table. She recognizes Jesus is Lord. He is the master. She has great faith because she believes he can do anything, even bless her by removing this unclean spirit from her daughter. But at the same time, she comes without any qualms about being worthy of the blessings that she will receive. She was the person, the disciples, from their background, their upbringing, their teaching, would never have associated with. Let me ask you the question, what type of person do you have difficulty identifying with? What kind of people would you never approach? I have to tell you, the most difficult individuals for me to, to approach with the gospel are the wealthy and the connected. One of the greatest transitional issues that we had in our household were our kids going to a school where there was a lot of money paid for tuition. It was hard for me to identify with these rich parents. 
And it's hard for me to realize sometimes that even these rich parents that I can say all kinds of pejorative things about, and I can say all kinds of things that I think in my head about these individuals, and yet the last thing sometimes that I want to say is these people might come to Jesus Christ through the ministry of a Christian school. Here in this area, you know there's some money in Myrtle Beach, did you know that? And, and in this area in particular, we live among some people that have some money that can afford to buy a house here. And I remember here a few years ago, I got it in my head that we should be offering a welcome basket to those who move into some of these richer neighborhoods, especially the newer ones that seem to be going up all around us. And I remember I contacted a local person who was involved in these things, and I thought, you know, our church needs to do this. So I dressed up in a suit, and I got ready to go uh, meet some individuals, and I found out I had the wrong day. You know, I was so relieved. <laughs> I, did, I didn't want to go be with these folks that I knew. I, I didn't match socioeconomically, at least in my upbringing. I didn't want to do that. But that's the point, isn't it? God can bring to me a wealthy and influential person that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not the group you have trouble with. Maybe it's another group of people. Maybe it's people that don't look like you. Or people that are from a different background than you. Or maybe you're a northerner that doesn't like to be around southerners or a southerner that has trouble with northerners. You know, whatever it is, God opens the doors. How dare we hold back the gospel from anyone? Was Jesus in saying, I came to save Israelites, and by the way, you're a dog here, and you know, whatever, I'm going to push you. Was he saying here, I'm not going to save you? Obviously not. What he's doing is he's teaching all of us, isn't he? He's teaching us, lest we think that we have the right to come to that table even without faith even without the barriers that are there. You know, maybe we want to say to ourselves, I grew up in the church. I deserve to have all the rights and privileges of believers in the household of God. I don't need all that repentance stuff or all that humbling stuff. We don't need to talk about sin all the time after all. But what is God saying? The gospel. As he would say to the Pharisees, the most righteous people, the most religious people of the day, he would say, the prostitutes and the sinners come into the kingdom of God before you. You see, the gospel is even for marginal people. I intentionally am using that term. I know it's loaded in our today's culture and so forth. But marginal in this sense, I'm going to say these are overlooked, invisible, or unnoticed people. One of the most difficult people groups to reach in all of the world is those who are deaf. Did you know that? It's hard because they have their own world. And, and, and now there are even those who grow up in the deaf community who would consider it a betrayal if someone who is born deaf begins to hear because they're leaving that community. In the world of the deaf, it's so hard to communicate. My father was not deaf, 
But he had a hearing problem from the time I was a baby until the time he died. And you know, there were certain types of events that he just couldn't go to. If it was really noisy somewhere, he just, it, was, it was it. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. In fact, he changed what he thought his goals were in his career. Uh, he was a pastor, but he had considered being a teacher. But for some reason, he felt because of his hearing problem that he couldn't pursue being a professor or a teacher, so he stayed in the ministry instead. I think, well, you know, that was tough too. But that was his desire. And here, the world of the deaf, they don't hear the things of God. Now, there are some ways they can do this that they couldn't in Jesus' day. In fact, in Jesus' day, they were even more marginalized, as we say now today. Society overlooked them. They could not uh, interact with people in the same way. Now, fortunately, this guy had friends to help. It says they brought to him. In other words, there are some friends, some individuals who come to him, and they brought him to Jesus. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, laying on of hands here symbolizes a blessing. There are differences of opinion among commentators whether these individuals were just looking to see that this man was blessed, thinking that Jesus couldn't do anything about it. And those who thought that he was looking, that these friends were looking for this man to actually be healed with the blessing of healing. Whatever the case, did they have faith or not have faith? The matter, fact of the matter is they had, this guy had friends. Not everyone would. And here's what Jesus does. He takes him aside from the crowd privately, puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And then he looked up at heaven and said to him, be open, that word that's hard to pronounce, whatever that means. Why did he do that? You know, he told other people, hey, you know, go home, your daughter's healed. Go home, you know, whatever. You're, it's, it's just by God's word spoken through Jesus that he can heal people. Why did he do all this other mumbo-jumbo? Was it that there was some magical formula to be used in this particular situation? No, it was this. He is an incarnational Christ. You know, we don't celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the idea of being incarnational is that God was dwelling among us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He was coming to take on the flesh of man and to be like us in every way except for sin so that he could identify with us, even being tempted in every way just as we are, so that he would be sympathetic with us and he would also be able to fulfill all righteousness. But this incarnational nature was not just so that he could say he had been a person. It was to dwell among his people. And this private and personal attention was given to this deaf person so that he could understand what was going on. He probably couldn't hear anything that Jesus said. He was deaf. So here he took him aside, and by these acts, these elaborate actions, putting his fingers in his ears, spitting probably on his fingers and touching his tongue, this was to show this man he had an intention to give him hearing and to heal his speech. 
It was elaborate actions in order for this man to have comprehension of what was going on. Jesus loved this man enough to take him aside privately in an incarnational fashion, entering his world, not of auditory sensation, but of vision, in order for that person to understand. And his healing here. Notice what happens. It wasn't the act of putting the fingers in the ears that healed the man, was it? It wasn't the spitting and touching the tongue that healed the man. It was saying, be opened. The word, the living word that created the world. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. The word by which we live. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the words we sang here just a little bit ago. And this healing symbolizes the Messiahship of Jesus. You see, it's a reference here back to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35 says this in verses 4 through 6. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And it's interesting, if you study language, you find out that the words for deaf and mute here in this particular situation are the very words that are used in Isaiah 35, sometimes rare or unusual for this description. And what does it do? It brings awe to everybody. In fact, they can't you know, even contain themselves. When they see that Jesus heals this man, Jesus says, hey, by the way, I don't want you spreading this all over. Perhaps he's wanting another retreat. Perhaps it's just not the time for that. Whatever it is, they cannot help themselves. They begin to go out and proclaim it zealously, it says. But at verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well, even making the deaf hear and the mute speak. I remember when I was in high school, I was in a rural community. I was actually in the smallest county, both population and geographical-wise, in the state of Illinois. We were right on the Mississippi River. Now there's only one high school in the whole county. At that point, there were two, Union and Southern. You can imagine how that worked. They were all farmers or rural people who were affected by farms. In fact, you know how it is. You go into town and you find out that the mailman also does his farm on the week and just does the other things to deliver the mail. You know, everybody seemed to be somehow associated with the rural occupation of farming. And in the middle of that, there was a family there who hosted Vietnamese individuals who had come over from their country as teenagers. And they went to the local school. So in my class, I had a friend named An, A-N-H. He was from Vietnam, An Nguyen. He had a sister, Na, N-G-A. And I really didn't get to know his sister because she was the most quiet person I had ever met. She was so timid and quiet. Maybe she didn't trust anybody. I don't know what it was. But she was someone that, that nobody really got to know. But I was friends with her brother, who was outgoing, 
And he told me, he said, my sister's having trouble with geometry. Could you help her? And so I was invited into her world. And for just a brief moment, I could come alongside and help her understand a concept in geometry. Now, I had the opportunity to minister to my friend on throughout high school. Occasionally, he would come to church with us or other things. To my knowledge, he's never become a believer. I've lost touch with him. I was invited, actually, to, to attend his, his daughter's party when she was born. I was the only non-Vietnamese person in that party in Chicago. And I wonder what's happened to him. But I did find out what happened to his sister. You know, his sister became a medical doctor in the state of Iowa, of all places. And she became a Christian. Because somebody entered her life. It wasn't me, necessarily. But somebody had to enter their, her life and reach her in her situation. That so timid person that nobody got to know. Somebody came alongside her and explained to her the gospel. You see, the value of personal loving care in the gospel is the care that Jesus gave this deaf person to actually get involved in their lives. You see, this is why ministry is so hard. I think sometimes somebody could, could teach and preach several classes and have all kinds of sermons every week and do all those things if it's impersonal. We can give money to all kinds of different causes that go in and help all kinds of individuals if it's impersonal. But to actually involve yourself in the life of someone to the extent that you're able to freely share with them the gospel is emotionally and physically taxing. Let me ask you, have you rejected any of God's candidates for gospel ministry? Maybe there needs to be some repentance in that area. Or maybe you think that the gospel can't possibly be for you because of your background, your situation, your unworthiness. God is saying here through Christ, first of all, the gospel is for everybody from every type of background. In fact, it says in John that Jesus came to save the world. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to save every last man, woman, and child. That's universalism. That's a, that's a heresy to scripture. But it means from, from every type of person born on the face of the earth, God will call a people unto himself, and he will save people from whatever background if they have been chosen by him from before the foundation of the world. You see, God can call anyone, anywhere, at any time. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how much money you had. It doesn't matter any of the characteristics about your appearance. It doesn't matter any of these things. Are you ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? All of us in this room were dogs. But by God's grace, we can be adopted into the family of God. Are you ready to pass on the good news of the gospel to whomever God brings into your life? 
to the extent that sometimes you might invest yourself in somebody else's life, even with the possibility that you might get burned. And you will. Even those closest to us sometimes will betray us. Think of this. Jesus ministered to his disciples, and what did they do? In his week of crucifixion, they betrayed him. But he invested himself in them so that they would hear the good news that he was the Messiah, the Christ, who was to come and to save his people, and the sheep will hear his voice. Even when he says the sheep who are not of this pasture, there are some who yet need to come in, like the Syrophoenician woman, like the Samaritan woman, like others that were not associated with the people of God, they will come in like those that we think are marginalized, like those we are hesitant to associate with. God will call his people to himself to enjoy the crumbs and spit of the kingdom of God. What a gospel. What a Christ. What a God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the crumbs. We thank you for the spit. We thank you for you, for giving us yourself, your life, your death on the cross, your perfect righteousness. We thank you for all these things. We thank you most of all that you died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.